Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the lives of relationship, field notes from the journey. My first guest is Mark Nepo. Mark is a beloved poet, teacher, and storyteller. Mark Nepo has been called one of the finest spiritual guides of our time. His widely accessible work has been translated into more than 20 languages, and his books have sold millions of copies worldwide. Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. He holds a doctorate of arts in English and taught at the University of Albany for 18 years. We're talking about his latest book, The Book of Soul, 52 Paths to Living What Matters. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure. I think... Whatever you write is always timely because I feel like it's always born of the moment, right? What, what you're sharing with us. But in particular, as we step into this next phase of our humanity, particularly after the pandemic and with all that's going on in the world, now more than ever, I think we need to pay attention to how we walk our path. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I really believe that each generation and each person, it's our turn. You know, the, I mean, for us, it was the pandemic. For my parents' generation, it was World War II. For the in-between generation, the Vietnam War, other things, you know, and, and whatever it might be, we are always faced with challenges. Are we going to choose love over fear? Yeah. And, and how are we going to do How are we going to discover one more time that we need each other and that we're more together than alone. And, and this is our turn. I want to touch upon what you just said about choosing love over fear, because so many of us are in fear, right? You look at what's out in the media, what you see on social media, which I, I do my very best to, to limit, but you know, sometimes <laughs> it seeps in uh, and there is so much fear-based behavior going on not so much in the younger kids, like I have young adults and they're, they're actually doing okay in that arena, but it's the older folks. Well, I think that, you know, fear, and I know a lot about fear because like everyone, I've experienced a lot of fear, Yeah. <laughs> especially, you know, one of my great apprenticeships in fear was, you know, over 35 years ago, but when I almost died uh, from a rare form of lymphoma, and I was just terrified. And and one of the things I learned about fear is fear is not to be obeyed, but to be, move through. 
because whenever I've asked my fear, what should I do? My fear says, be more afraid. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I don't ask my fear. I, I try to comfort my fear and I ask my heart and my soul and I ask loved ones and I ask for help. But, you know, when we, when we obey our fear, then we start to look for only what's familiar and then we stop growing. And so, you know, and we can see this playing out all, all over our society right now and through the pandemic, the more fearful we've gotten, you know, the more and when we're fearful, we look for what will confirm what we already know as if that will protect us. And that's not education, you know, Growing is teach me what I don't know. You don't. You know something I don't. Thank God you're not me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let, let notes. <laughs> Bring some other interest to the table here. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm thinking of a particular incident that I had with a family member um, a few weeks ago, who. Uh, found a homeless person or, or came upon a homeless person in their neighborhood and was really frightened by this experience and needed this person in their mind, needed this person gone and was making a lot of noise with their, with their city, you know, to have this situation taken care of. And I brought up with this person who shall remain nameless, like what is so fearful about this human being? Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens to us when we get afraid is we, we push things away and that only makes the fear greater because if we can lean in, you know, chances are that homeless person was very afraid of quote, normal people. <laughs> And, and because no one chooses to be homeless, obviously. Yes, yes. And, you know, and, and I remember this was a simple thing, but it taught me a lot was, you know, my mother, who's now gone. And uh, but when, you know, I grew up on Long Island in outside of New York City and uh, and she was a person, God bless her, who, you know, wasn't very comfortable in nature. So she was afraid of bugs and insects and everything. You know, if a if a bug was in the house, everything <laughs> had to stop and we rolled up magazines and, you know, and I and so I never had anything against insects, but I kind of inherited this. Yeah. You know? And I remember jogging in the summer and I, I sat on a bench in, in this was in Albany, New York, and all of a sudden a bee landed on the bench near my arm. And my first was like, uh oh, you know, and uh, and maybe because I was exhausted from running you know, my first kind of fear response was swat it. But I thought, what an odd response. Like, I'm so much bigger than this little thing. And I have legs, I can move. So I didn't experiment. I let the bee get a little closer. And as it got closer, I could see that its stinger was not extended. You uh -huh. know? And so by allowing it to get close, what I feared to get closer, I had more information and I could actually see, oh, it's actually safer. So the more we push away, the, the more the fear gets because we don't have any more information. And if we can let what we fear get a little closer, we actually get more information. And then it's like, oh, you know what? 
I don't need to be afraid until it extends its stinger. Yeah, I think that is a, a great illustration of working with our fear. Because, I mean, fear actually does have some constructive uses if we put it to work. The proper legitimate function of fear is to alert us to real danger. So, again, here's a simple example. I, I, I mishandle something at the stove and I burn myself. So now, because I'm afraid, I say, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to make sure there's a foot between me and that stove every time I pass it. Yeah. So not only can I not use the stove because I'm not learning how to better use it, but I've made the distance great. So there's a legitimate ring of safety. And we, because we're human, we distort that. We exaggerate it and say, you know what, just to be safe, I'm going to add like a foot. But then <laughs> inside, what do we do? Now we say that's the ring of safety. And that's not true. So now just replace the stove with that homeless person or love. You know, I get burned by love. Now I say, well, <laughs> forget that. I'm going to back up uh, a foot or two. Maybe I'll even make it three feet, you know, just to play safe. So what happens? Not only is that extra distance not necessary, I can't reach anyone because I've put myself so far away. So now not only am I afraid, but then I start telling myself, man, it's lonely in life. Yeah. Because I can't reach. So you see what, and we do, all of us do this. So one of the, the, and you know, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a great, great, uh, kind of, uh, practice or orientation is to how can we see things as they are. And that is at once simple and the most difficult thing on earth. So our question for all of us, for anyone who's listening, if we want to reduce our fear, how can you right size your ring of fear to your legitimate ring of safety? Ooh. How? Well, what can you do? Can you talk to a friend? Can you look more closely? Can you revisit your habitual fears and say, how far do I really need to be from that stove, from that person, from that unknown thing, from that homeless person, from the bee that's legitimate so that my fear doesn't increase the distance between me and life? And, you know, it's interesting as you say this, and I, I'm thinking of this person, the walls come up, right, and keep us from the very thing we want, which is a fuller experience of the life that we're living. Well, the, you know, the, the challenge always, and, and again, you know, walls have their purposes, yeah. but whatever we wall out, we also wall in. Mm-hmm. And so we make ourselves, you know, and you know, actually D.H. Lawrence has a poem called Self-Protection in which he, he asks the question, is the best self-protection hiding who we are or being who we are? So, yeah, we, you know, if we take risks, we'll be hurt. We'll, we'll, things won't go right all the time. But if we don't, and, and this, this goes into a deeper conversation, you know, that, 
if we don't, we will not only isolate ourselves, we'll lose touch with the resources of life. So everyone alive needs to both survive and thrive. Now, to survive, we have to manage risks. We, you know, like yes. you and I couldn't have this conversation if we were crossing a street, we'd have to look, otherwise we might get hit by a truck. That's managing risk. But inside, inwardly, the only way we thrive and grow is by enhancing risk. Yes. So we have to become skilled at both in the proper field. Which requires a clarity of perspective, which if we're managed by fear or ruled by fear, it's really hard to do. And this is where we can reach out to each other. So, you know, if I'm struggling with something I can't see clearly, I can call you up as my dear friend. You know, I'd say, um, I'm feeling really afraid of this and I'm not sure if I've got a clear picture of this. Could you help look at this with me? Mm. This is a beautiful thing. And yet it's very hard for many people to do because it involves the V word, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, the word, there is no transformation without vulnerability. Yeah. You know, in the, in the Tao, the, the, you know, the classic Tao, there's a verse that Lao Tzu offers where he says, everything hard and brittle breaks, be like water. Yeah. I want to do a sound effect with that. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> We should take a break. That's probably a good point. To uh, learn more about Mark Nepo and his really amazing work, please visit marknepo.com. On Twitter, you can find him at Mark Nepo. And the same goes for Facebook and Instagram. We're talking about Mark's newest book, The Book of Soul, 52 Paths to Living What Matters. Here comes the pause and we'll be right back. Before we pause, let's talk about the definition of professional these days. On LinkedIn, important conversations are happening around what it means to be a professional. Right now, LinkedIn members are talking about priorities like flexibility around where we work, when we work, how we work, and even taking time to step away from work to take care of our mental health and family's well-being. Because life matters, and this is not a dress rehearsal. And the thing that matters most should not stunt our career development and growth. In fact, our experiences add value and impact how we show up for work and life. LinkedIn members are putting what matters most to them in their titles with things like podcast host slash activist slash mom. I'm going to update my profile to say podcast host slash positive psychology expert slash servant leader slash optimal lifestyle management consultant slash lover of life slash mom. Professional is ours to define and our authentic self is our best professional self. So if your LinkedIn doesn't reflect who you really are, Update your job title and let the world see the real and valuable you. And join the conversations redefining professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, welcome professional. Now let's take that pause. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, 
and speaking engagement services. We're back. But before we get back to it, I want to share how much architecture and design are a part of my everyday life and impact my happiness. Many of you know that before I followed my bliss in positive psychology, I studied architecture. So it's no surprise that I'm always reading the latest design magazines and creating lookbooks of trending designs to use on interior spaces for projects with my honey, who is a residential architect. If you're anything like me, you also enjoy redecorating your space. Wouldn't it be great to be able to see your interior design ideas come to life? And that's why I love Redecor, the number one home designer's playground. Redecor is a home design app and a mobile game rolled into one that's fun and inspiring to play. Redecor is a mindfully creative experience that lets your imagination run wild as you design room after room with color, material, and texture. I really enjoy participating in design challenges and seeing what designers from all over the world are creating. Redecor is an interactive platform that is a place to play, explore designs, find inspiration, and connect with others who share your passion for home decor. The graphics are so realistic and detailed, and you're able to customize every piece of the room. They've even got style guides with tips, tricks, and advice for decorating. Enter daily design challenges and let other players be the judge. I've entered the Women of Redecor Challenge that's packed with girl power in celebration of International Women's Day. Submit your best design and reap the rewards if you come out on top. Test and cultivate your creativity with Redecor today. Practice your interior design skills and express your creativity with Redecor. Download Redecor for free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's R-E-D-E-C-O-R on the App Store or Google Play Store. Now let's get back to it. And we're back talking with Mark Nepo about the lives of relationship. Field notes from the journey. Let's get back to it. So Mark, we were talking a little bit about fear and expanding our circle to allow more of what we want in and learn to dance with our fears, perhaps, and question them. Let's go back to the topic of love, because I once had a professor, and I say this often on the show, the professor said to me, healing is the application of love to the places that hurt. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that and I, and again, I, I go back to my cancer journey so many years ago. I was so blessed to be held and cared for by so many people, including people I didn't know. And one of the great gifts of all that is that, you know, I received everything. Yeah. I didn't have any preferences. I didn't have any, well, let's see, should I accept this? You know, I had, I was raised Jewish and, uh, and, and through this journey, I became, which affected all of my work, a student of all paths. I have a great tie to the Jewish heritage, but you know, I, I was blessed to have people from every walk of life, including atheists and scientists and native Americans and Sufi, uh, practitioners, kindly offer me some blessing or help. So when I tumbled back into life, still blessed to be here, I was not, and am still not all these years later, I 
I had I can't tell you what worked and what didn't. And I was challenged to believe in everything. And therefore, you know, all my work, all my books, all my teaching, the things I explore in circle with others, I believe in a common unnameable center to all paths and the unique gifts of each, you know, so I've come to, and that's informed all my work. And, uh, you know, I feel like the poet in me is the part of me that sees and the philosopher in me tries to make sense of what I see, but it's the cancer survivor in me that says, if we can't make use of it, forget it. (laughs) How beautifully put. (laughs) <laughs> and, and isn't that the essence of this life, right? If we can't make good use of our experiences and make good use of ourselves in relationship to the world. This is the, you know, like we learn to open our eyes in order to see. If you don't see, once you open your eyes, what's the point of having eyes? And, it, and we learn to open our heart. There's, and through vulnerability, through overcoming fear, through reaching for each other in order to love. And if we don't love and reach once our heart is open, what's the point of having a heart? You know, often our personal growth involves seeing and feeling. But if we don't then move into the life of relationship, then what's the point, you know, and, and, and we need both, you know, there was a great Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu sage had this wonderful, you know, saying, he said, you know, trying to save the world before liberating yourself is like carpeting the earth rather than wearing sandals. (laughs) (laughs) That is pretty great. Isn't that great? And, and, you know, and, and when you look at this, you know, in Dante's Divine Comedy in Purgatory, he describes there is a ring of purgatory for people who good, do good poorly. Oh, They're not in hell because they're doing good, but they're not in paradise because they're doing good poorly. And if we don't, so what does this mean when we take these things, what Ramana Maharshi said and what Dante said? Well, it means that the way I understand it, if I am not aware, if I don't do my own inner work, I will very naturally, like all human beings, I may not give you what you need. I may give you what I might need if I were in your place. Mm. So let me give you an example of that. A very, you know, a very warm, touching example. And Years ago, in in a former life, in a previous marriage, my former father-in-law, he's gone now. He was a wonderful old farmer from upstate New York. And when his sister was dying, um, and he was a very quiet, loving, giving man, but very quiet, hardly, you know, didn't speak much. Well, all of a sudden, when his sister was in the hospital, he was very vocal. He was insistent that she not be left alone. We had to all make sure that she was not left alone all through the night. And I had this touching awareness. You know, I thought, oh, you just told me what you want when it's your turn. Yeah. You know, you know, nobody ever asked her sister. She might have said, God, leave me alone. Yeah, I need a minute here. <laughs> <laughs> but he, without realizing it, and so, you know, 
I convert. So it made me, the more I reflect on that, one of the things about relationship is without self-awareness, without self-truth, I might intending well give you what I would need if I were you and never ask you what you need. And isn't that oftentimes the dilemma in relationship, right? We, we tend to love the other the way we want to be loved without really understanding how the other wishes to receive it. Yeah. And this is why it's so important, you know, in, in to ask, you know, um, in doing one of my other books on the history of community, more to, which is called More Together Than Alone, I stumbled on this beautiful, beautiful practice, which is done still today by Native American elder councils. And they always meet in circle, not just because of equity. There's no head to the circle. But they meet in circle so that everyone has a direct view of the center. And I love that because the assumption in that is no one view is enough. We need everybody's view to understand or grasp whatever we put in the center. So in this instance, what we're talking about, say, you know, all of a sudden we're friends and, and, and your heart is broken. And I know what it's like to have a broken heart and I want to be there for you. And that's what's in the center. But in my, as we've been saying, you know, in meaning well, I might be there for you, but say, boy, I, I know just what you're going through. Well, no, I don't. No. I need, I, I can tell you what heartache look, heartbreak looks like from my side of the circle. But then I need to say to you, What's it look like from your side of the circle of life? Yeah. Tell me. Tell me what this is like for you. And then when we combine both of our experiences and then other people on the circle, then we start we start to grow the meaning of whatever is in the middle of the circle. And what you just described is is also full presence, which in today's society because our attention spans are pulled in so many different directions, that too is a challenge to gift someone full presence. We often take for granted and don't realize that how powerful our full presence is. And because we meaning well, we, we want to help, we want to problem solve, we want to, but often, and, and of course I, I've done this, you know, I have to watch myself too, but you know, if I jump in, too quickly, I don't give you the space to discover what you didn't know you know. Yeah. Because feeling and thinking out loud for a spirit is what sketching is for an artist. That's huge, actually. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know as you say that, I'm like, yeah, that, that's it. Right? It's the, that's the creative process. And so we bear, you know, Cicero, the Roman orator, he said, a friend is a second self. And of course, I mean, I didn't talk to Cicero. I don't know what he meant, but what, but why I quote <laughs> that is what it means to me is just what we're talking about, that we can be there for each other. And this is the heart at the root of the word compassion means to be with. Yeah. To be with, because, you know, if you fall down, I can help you up. If you're thirsty, I can bring you water. But if your heart is broken, 
and your soul is thirsty, I can't, I can be with you. That's all. Which I, is the everything. Which is everything. <laughs> right? It's the that, everything to, to be with. Relationship. Yeah. yeah. And that's that love part of it. You know, the potent salve of love that, and, you know, we're not talking about romantic love. We're talking about really the essence of what it means to be with each other. Well, and humbly, you know, I mean, one of my, which is just a stanza, one of my small poems goes like this. It goes, the mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. Humbly, fully, lovingly, <laughs> appreciatively. Wow. Mark Nepo, The Book of Soul, 52 Paths to Living What Matters. To learn more, please visit marknepo.com. And you can find Mark on all social channels at Mark Nepo. Mark, anytime, come back. There's always room around the circle and in it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Hang on just a little minute here. Before we take that pause, let's talk about the importance of self-care and clean living. When we take good care of our bodies, minds, and spirits, we feel better about ourselves and that makes us happy. And when it comes to personal hygiene products, who has got the time and energy to analyze every ingredient and some of the stuff you can't even pronounce? Native cares about what we put on our bodies, and that's why I've been a devotee of Native personal care products for years. Best known for their aluminum-free deodorant, Native wants to help you practice safe sweat. That's why Native keeps their ingredient list bare naked with coconut oil, shea butter, and baking soda. I work out daily and love to sweat, but what I don't love is the stink. Truth be told, I am a mega schwitzer who is crazy about native deodorant. Native has skin in the game because you do too. Native deodorant checks important performance boxes like 24-hour odor protection, naturally derived ingredients, a smooth residue-free application, and more than 10 heavenly scents to choose from. Right now, my personal go-to scent is the lavender and rose in plastic-free packaging. Say yes to environmental friendliness. Be sure to also check out Native's partnership with Baked by Melissa, a limited edition collection that smells good enough to eat created to make every day a little sweeter, inspired by the signature cupcake sensation. All Native products are thoughtfully formulated to make clean, simple, and effective personal care products. Go Native and level up your self-care routine. Smell and feel fresh all day long with Native. Get 20% off your first order by going to nativedo.com slash harvesting or use promo code harvesting at checkout. That's nativedo.com slash harvesting or use promo code harvesting at checkout for 20% off your first order. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome 
Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation about lives of relationship field notes from the journey. My next guest is Dan Millman, who is a former world champion athlete, university coach, martial arts instructor, and college professor. After an intensive 20-year spiritual quest, Dan's teaching found its form as the peaceful warrior's way. His work continues to evolve over time and to meet the needs of a changing world. Dan lives with his wife, Joy, in Brooklyn, New York, and he's in the house to talk about his latest book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. Welcome back, Dan. It's been a few years since you've been on the show, and I'm so eager to catch up. It's great to be with you again here, Lisa. Let's talk about the journey work of living or the journey work of our lives, because you and I spoke before we started this interview about sort of the evolution, things changing, and this book being a bit more biographic about your personal journey. Yes, actually, it seemed the right time. This is my 18th book, a culminating work, because... I wanted to wait until I had enough life to look back on. Uh, This month, I'll turn 76 years old, and I do have more to look back on than forward to, objectively. (laughs) But also, I wanted to do it while I had my memory, all my memory banks in good order. So it seemed like just the right time to share about my own uh, journey. Now, I, I need to say, of course, that I didn't presume that um, legions of people will want to read just about this Dan Millman character um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm me. That, that's really not why I wrote the book. It describes some essential elements of the spiritual quest. I, I believe we're all on a spiritual quest, whether or not we use those words or whether it's conscious or not. Yeah. Everyone is seeking a sense of fulfillment, uh, purpose, maybe even a sense of transcendence in life, wondering what's the larger meaning and purpose of our journey. So that's why it seemed timely to write this particular book now. Let me just interject here because many people, including listeners of this show, often eye roll when we talk about spirituality and a spiritual life. And I do agree with you that we all possess it, whether or not we're in touch with it or not, or cultivating it or not. But you describe spiritual in a way that I find so easily digestible and friendly, that which inspires or uplifts. Yes. In in fact, I like to present things in practical terms we can relate to. Most 99% of our attention appropriately is focused on everyday conventional life, taking care of kids or going to school or or going to work, uh, doing what we need to do in daily life. So I want to acknowledge that. But there is a part of us also that looks to the idea of transcendence, life's bigger picture. Uh, What that means, how I would differentiate it from daily life, is that daily life is done down in the weeds right here at the base of a a mountain. And that mountain represents the harvesting happiness, let's say, the the (laughs) climb to the higher altitudes of human experience, even as we function in everyday life. From the peak of that mountain, if we found ourselves transported there, everything looks more beautiful in the distance. We see a panoramic view and we realize it's all ultimately going to be okay. So there is that quest as well. And I came across this idea of spirituality being that which inspires and uplifts when I asked my daughter, then 10 years old, now a grown woman, but 
I asked her, she was a voracious reader, and I said, Sierra, can you give me a list of maybe 10 spiritual books you've read? And she gave me a list the next day, and not a single one of them was about metaphysics or new age or uh, religion. They were books that inspired her, that touched her, that moved her deeply. And to me, that is a more realistic, a manageable definition of spirituality than than getting into all the elements of religious belief and everything else that goes along with that. Well, it sounds like Sierra gave you a very grounded perspective of something that is a bit amorphous. Yes, exactly. And that's why I use that definition in one of the key terms in the beginning of the book. So we're on all on the same page. So when we talk about the spiritual quest or desiring to bring more spirituality or connection into our lives, what do you tell somebody who shares this with you? Like, where do you guide them? Where do you tell them to look? Well, the reason I wrote the book is because I, when I was young, I was really into self-improvement. I took memory courses, speed reading, ventriloquism. I learned sleight of hand magic. I did martial arts. I, I, I loved learning new skills. And of course, I was an acrobat and a gymnast as well. But one day, I realized that no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. But if I could somehow touch the lives of other people, I didn't know how at the time, but if I could reach out and influence other people in a positive way, that made my life more meaningful. And I think many of us eventually reached this conclusion. It's like that movie Groundhog Day, you know, <laughs> when, uh, when the only game in town finally after he lives this one day over and over, some say for a thousand years, he finally turns to the only game in town, which is service. The idea that, that really um, harvesting happiness involves service to other people. Yeah. touching the lives of others. And, and so that's why I was moved to write the book because I worked with four unusual mentors and I think I found them only because of my commitment to share whatever I learned with other people in my own way. And so I met the professor over a period of 20 years, by the way, first the professor, then, then the person I called the guru, and then the warrior priest, and then the sage. And these four teachers had radically different approaches to, let's say, enlightenment or just life. And again, I worked with them for over two decades in preparation for the work I do now uh, in the form of what I call the peaceful warrior's way. How did you find these teachers? Because people will say, you know, I don't have mentors. I don't have a good example of what a a holistic, integrated, joyful, spiritually connected life looks like? Ah, yes. Well, many times we idealize that whole uh, thing that it's all blissful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you mean it's not? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's up and down. In fact, the guru had the most interesting definition of enlightenment I ever heard. He said, it's alternating between the heights of ecstasy and the depths of despair back and forth at the speed of light. <laughs> so that that's kind of an interesting definition I hadn't come across before. Um, yes. But we, again, we, we don't want to idealize the lives of others. You know, today, uh, many people get depressed, many young people particularly, because they see how happy everyone else seems on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all these other online programs. And they, everyone's showing their best side, their best life. 
and they, they go, I must not be there. But I think one of the major mistakes we can make in life is comparing ourselves to other people, period. Even idealized uh, other people like, like um, enlightened masters and people who are transcending, uh, imagining what their lives, how great they must be. See, as soon as we compare ourselves to someone else, we feel either superior or inferior. And it's a profound disrespect for our own process. When I was a young coach at Stanford University, I taught beginning gymnasts as well. And I noticed some people learned, uh, let's say, a somersault faster than other people, except those who took longer to learn it often learned it better than those who learned it faster. So we need to respect our own way of learning, our own way of living. And so that's why I always come from that context um, that we don't need to compare ourselves to others. Someone once said, I can't write a book commensurate to Shakespeare, but I can write a book by me. Yeah. And that's what we're here to do, to write our own story. And when you look at social comparison in terms of what researchers say about it, that it does inhibit or minimize our happiness and our well-being. If we're always comparing to what's out there, we're going to come up short. Yes, exactly. I want to go back to what you said about what one of your gurus told you about, and I'm paraphrasing it, the ability to toggle between joy and despair with agility. Because this is something that most Westerners are so adverse to. We think there's a false sense of belief that we should be happy all the time. Yes, yes. And the best thing about going to college is that we find out it doesn't make us happy. <laughs> there, there are people who never went to college and for years or decades, they can say to themselves, if only I'd gone to college, I'd be happy. Or if only I had a better relationship and had found a soulmate, then I'd be happy. If only I'd had children, I'd be happy. If only I hadn't had children, I'd be happy. If only I made more money. If only I had more respect. If only I got to travel more. But eventually we realize that there is no such thing as future happiness. The future is always the future. It doesn't come. Right. We either practice happiness as an active practice, not waiting for it to descend on us now, or we don't. And that's our existential choice, moment to moment. Now, people say, what do you mean a practice of happiness, Dan? Because most of us are waiting for happiness to descend like a good feeling. We've all felt happy. We know what that's like. And so I ask people in audiences sometimes, when you're feeling very happy, and you have in moments, what do you behave like? Are you more present? Are you more enthusiastic? Are you kinder when you're feeling very happy? And everyone says, yes. I say, good, practice that. Yeah, Bring go there. <laughs> Just <Yeah>. go there. <laughs> That's the practice. And no, no, don't go there in terms of trying to drum up a good feeling, but behave in a way a happy person behaves. Be kind, be present, be enthusiastic. And you'll find your life is one of getting better at the practice of happiness. Yeah, I agree with you. I also want to say something that you don't know, but I'm going to reveal to you now that one of the books that I picked up, this is now decades ago, that set me on my path when we talk about mentorship and finding those people in your lives is The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And that book, I don't even remember when it was published, but if you tell me the date, I'll tell you where I was in space and time and why it made was so important. Well, the paperback edition came out in about 1985, I believe. There we go. 
(laughs) (laughs) There we go. I was in undergraduate school. And, you know, when we talk about discovering that maybe school isn't always the happy place, and I believe in education, I think it's a good thing, but it was a turning point for me in that I realized that that wasn't enough for true contentment. Yes, yes. And that's why we eventually turn toward service. And by service, not some um, holier-than-thou idea of I'm a do-gooder. It's just a, a sense of non-self-referral. Yeah. Of what can I do? Small things we do, for whether it's picking up a bit of litter on the street, putting it in a, being part of the solution rather than the problem. Uh, whether it's a kind word to people in the supermarket who are doing the checkout. Those kinds of things. Little things can make a big difference. Being of good use. Yes. You know, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dan Millman. We're speaking about his latest book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, the true story of my spiritual quest. To connect with Dan, please do so on his website at PeacefulWarrior.com, on Twitter at PWDan, on Facebook, Official Peaceful Warrior, and on Instagram, Dan Millman PW. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is an absolute promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with Dan Millman, we're talking about the lives of relationship, field notes from the journey. Let's get back to it. Dan, prior to the break, we were talking a little bit about the journey towards a more happy life. You spoke about the four most important mentors in your life, and I want to talk about their relevancy as being a product of the time, how you found them, and how... We now fast forward to today and tomorrow might seek to find them for ourselves. Sure. There are people who read Way of the Peaceful Warrior who say, I wish I had a teacher like Socrates. I, I offer a revelation about that particular teacher, my literary mentor in, uh, in the preface to the new book. Um, but the real, the actual mentors I met were significant teachers who influenced my life and work. Now, I should acknowledge that we've all had mentors, role models. Uh, we all can think back and remember one or two or maybe even three teachers in elementary or middle school or high school or even college who uh, stood out for us, who demanded the best from us, uh, who inspired us in some way and helped us to see ourselves. So we've all had mentors and we, we do every day. You know that saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. We've all heard that. Yes. But many people misunderstand it. They they think, for example, when we've suffered enough 
or when we're deserving enough or we've prepared enough or been initiated and somehow a teacher like Socrates or one of the teachers I, I, uh, I encountered will appear to guide us or kick us up the path. But actually, I believe that what that saying really means is when the student is ready or paying attention, the teacher appears everywhere. I describe in the new book a, a, a valuable lesson that changed my behavior. Uh, watching a cloud drift through the blue sky. So nature has always been my primary teacher. The Japanese call it forest bathing. Mm. We can be inspired by the natural world, a tree bending in the wind, a stream flowing with gravity down downhill. These things all remind us of the way, the Tao, let's say. So yes, I did work with four actual unusual and powerful in the, each in their own way, mentors. But people don't have to run around looking for these kinds of teachers. My own experiences, and I'm gonna share, I share it in the book, people can benefit from the essence, the taste of each one of them. And the reason I have four very different names for them is the professor um, offered a technological approach to enlightenment, to let's say transcendent happiness, if you will. Um, and it, by technology, I meant he gave an incredible global heritage of exercises from all the traditions that and he had experimented for years, how to put them together in a certain way using group process to accelerate. It, was, it began with a 40-day intensive training, 10 hours a day for 40 days wow. straight. How many of us have time for that today? <laughs> yeah. You know, and they, we gathered as a group and we worked together in depth. And that was just the beginning of my work with a professor. But the point is, today there are many different systems. There's EST, you remember the EST training. I do. Avatar, <laughs> Life Stream, the Forum. There's even, you know, maybe some slightly darker approaches, you know, Scientology. And I mean, there are all kinds of uh, different approaches to human potential. There's the teacher, Byron Katie. She has her four questions that people work with. Yeah. So these are all techniques. They're methods or systems to grow beyond ourselves and within ourselves. So that, that was the professor's approach. And I really dove into that. Now, probably no time now to go into how what attracted me, how I stumbled upon them, various synchronicities, a chance phone call, that sort of thing in discovering the professor. But uh, then I moved on after some time and I spent uh, seven to eight years with a man I called the guru. He has a very different approach. He said, I'd rather beat you with a stick than teach you, tell you to meditate your way to enlightenment. <laughs> so it was a radically kind of different approach. But his way was, he claimed, uh, with some good reasons and some other spiritual teachers like Ken Wilber and, and uh, Alan Watts uh, thought the world of this particular teacher. And his approach was you sit with him and he transmits mm. the divine directly. But it Whoa. was also a way of life. We lived in a, a household, in a community household uh, in the San Francisco area. And again, on and off as students and devotees, my wife, Joy, and I spent almost eight years within the company of the guru and his community uh, practicing a, a way of life. Uh, and then I discovered the warrior priest. Very different again. I mean, a former, he was a martial arts instructor, former bounty hunter, and yet he also was a metaphysician and healer. Quite an unusual fellow who actually gave me the tools. Uh, it was like career training 
I, I, that's when I stepped forward to teach what I do now. This was around 1980, uh, about the mid 80s at that point. Uh, I wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior after my time with the professor and the guru. Then I met the warrior priest who'd read my book. And so he wanted to meet me and he befriended me. We became sort of colleagues, but I also studied uh, an approach to communicating that, that seemed quite effective. Um, so the time with the warrior priest was exciting. You know, you're around certain people and life gets more exciting. Well, that was what it was like with him. And he gave, and he helped me grow into myself, let's say. Um, and finally, I, you know, by this time I was done with teachers. I mean, I felt I'd have the <laughs> best. This was years, a decade or more. Um, but then I, again, another coincidence, I stumbled upon the work of the sage, the man I call the sage. These are real people. They have names and I go into them in the book. Um, but the sage uh, brought me back to earth after being in the sky of mind, the metaphysical realms and all this adventurous things. He brought me back to earth to simple reality, helped me simplify my life. Uh, and presented again the idea of happiness as a practice. Yeah. It's what we do. Our lives are shaped more by what we do, moment to moment, if we look back on them, than what we happen to be feeling or thinking at any given moment. Uh, and he focused on what we had more control over, but also our indebtedness to others. So that gives a quick summary idea of the different kind of approaches one can take to personal development, uh, or even spiritual growth. And that's what I wanted to outline as a kind of a cautionary tale, or at least uh, to illuminate the path that uh, different people are following. So really the book is about this spiritual journey, this quest. In today's society, the pace that we live at is so quick. We're bombarded with so many different messages on so many different levels. I'm wondering if you were to retell the story, fast forward to today, if those relationships would have been of the same duration, would there have been more? I guess what I'm getting at is for the, for the seekers out there, for the curious, they who don't have the time to sit for 10 hours a day, you know, in training, how do we find these people? You know, yes, yours was a series of synchronicities that led you from one to the other. Are you suggesting that we need to open our eyes and pay closer attention to what's going on out there to even see the possibility of mentorship? Good, good question. Good question. Well, a fundamental tenet of this approach to living I call the peaceful warrior's way is that, first of all, there is no best teacher, book, religion, philosophy, diet, martial art, system <laughs> of exercise. There's only the best for each of us at yes. a given time of our life. And also that, uh, again, the teacher, daily life is guaranteed to teach us everything we need to evolve as human beings. The challenges of relationship and health and finances and career decisions, all those things. You know, a man came up to me after reading Way of the Peaceful Warrior and he said, Dan, you know, I'm really interested in spiritual practice after reading your book, but how do I have the time? I have a wife and three children and a full-time job. He came to understand that his wife, his children, his full-time job were his primary spiritual yeah. practices. They will develop us and they demand more and develop more than sitting in a cave and meditating. I know because I've done both. <laughs> so what I've tried to do, Lisa, is my work is a response to the acceleration of everyday life. Yeah. Times, you know, we still have 24 hours in a day. We still have uh, approximately 12 to 16 hours to sleep. So 
time isn't really accelerating, but it's how we prioritize it. And the energy is building, yes. Uh, I, I announced that at my first talk I gave in 1985 about how the pace of life is accelerating. Can you imagine? I said that in 85, oof, before oof. the internet, before smartphones, before things really, the white water really hit. So yes, uh, we need to be more efficient today. Uh, for example, I, I've taught and practiced for 40 years a workout I call the Peaceful Warrior Workout, which takes four minutes a day. Based on the principle, a little of something is better than a lot of nothing. <laughs> I, it's part of my overall workout routine. I've continued to do it. I have a four-minute meditation I teach. These are both online courses through my website. Um, it's a four-minute meditation to help us appreciate uh, daily life, to reawaken our appreciation. So the point is I appreciate efficient, uh, fast ways to get results. We want to be as quickly to move as quickly as we can without stumbling though. Does it take a lifetime to achieve a peaceful heart and a warrior spirit? I would hope so. That's the most <laughs> honest answer. If yeah. we're alive, there's still things to learn. Yeah. So, um, yes, I continue to practice and I point out in the book actually how, uh, you know, it's best to re retain a humble beginner's mind. Even as, even as you, uh, I play the role of teacher, um, life continues to offer some humbling moments, although I'm not as hum humble as I used to be since I came across a quotation by Golda Meir. She said, stop being so humble. You're not that great. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. I have heard that one before. One more question. How would you guide others treading on the same or similar path? Like if the one kernel, the jewel takeaway well, the same or similar, we're, we're all on, on this different paths up the same mountain, let's yeah. say. Um, and, you know, I think as a summary statement related to that idea of not comparing ourselves to others is to trust our own life, our own process. Not a single story on the planet is exactly like ours. We are unique. It's our treasure, our story. So to live that story, to trust the process of our life unfolding. Uh, it has peaks and valleys. It has difficult times, but uh, that makes us wiser and stronger. I had a professor in graduate school who said something like, you know, allowing ourselves and others the dignity of our process. Beautiful. And well I think put. that's what you're saying. Yes. Wow. Dan Millman, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. To learn more about Dan Millman's work and his latest book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest, please visit PeacefulWarrior.com, on Twitter at PWDan, and on Facebook, you can find Dan Millman at Official Peaceful Warrior, and on Instagram, Dan Millman PW. Dan, thank you again, really. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Mark Nepo and Dan Millman, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day, and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere, from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. 
Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.